Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are a guest, I am so honored that you're with us this morning. Um, We're going to be looking at the first eight verses in Matthew chapter six this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, I'm going to read that now, and if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand as we read God's Word. This is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, As we look at Jesus' words about how we ought to give and how we ought to pray, I want to mention to you this morning our brothers and sisters in Turkey and in Syria. If you haven't heard um, this past week, an earthquake and subsequent tremor just devastated southern Turkey and northern Syria. In Turkey alone, more than 25,000 have been reported dead. Over 80,000 have been reported injured, and the numbers are still coming in. On top of that, millions are homeless and grieving at a time when there's rain and snow and temperatures are dipping down below freezing. We personally have mission partners in this region that are witnessing firsthand the heartbreak and the devastation. So we want to encourage you to pray for Turkey and for Syria. We want to encourage you to pray for the church there and especially for our missions partners there. Um, In the coming days, we're going to be letting you know specific ways that you can pray and specific ways that you can give. But for now, before I get started on my sermon, I want to take a moment and pray for our brothers and sisters there. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, you do know what we need before we ask. Our hearts are broken when we slow down just for a moment to think about what it would be like to be experiencing the loss of a loved one on top of the loss of home, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, trying to keep warm in the cold. It's hard for us to even fathom what the needs are, but you know. So, Father, would you please have your hand on Turkey and Syria, 
on the government, on the humanitarian aid that's needed. Lord, bless your church, comfort your church, and mobilize your church to seek the least and the lost during this time. May you be known. May your comfort be real to those. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Well, unfortunately, when I wrote my sermon, it starts with a goofy story. So we're just going to hard transition from uh, a pretty somber situation to a goofy story. But, um, well, I don't have a Super Bowl joke because I'm not a sports guy. So I'm talking about my band again, and you can just make fun of me because if you've been here before, I always have some story to tell about the band that I was in. And we weren't a big deal or anything. My band is not the point. But in 2003, uh, my band was touring with a band that probably many of you have heard of called Switchfoot. And at the time of the tour, Switchfoot was blowing up. They had just released this huge album. Um, Well, if you don't know, Switchfoot is this anomaly. They're an overtly Christian band that somehow has broad appeal in the Christian market and in the general market. So... They were like number one on MTV back when MTV had anything to do with music. And they were like on TRL and all that stuff. The, the tour that we went on, every single show was sold out. And it wasn't like, oh, we're playing like First Baptist of Carthage, Tennessee youth room or something. Like we were playing like House of Blues and these cool venues that like any band, Christian or not, would think it was cool to play at. So... One night we were playing at this venue in Norfolk, Virginia called the Norva. It's one of the coolest venues I've ever been to. I did get my wallet stolen there one time. But other than that, I love this place. And um, my band had already played. You know, we, we were first. We weren't the big deal. And Switchfoot was about to go on stage, and I was backstage. And by this point, like, I knew them. And, you know, we were kind of, like, friendly with each other. And they were like, hey, Mark, do you want to come pray with us? And I'm just like... I, like, I could almost, like, feel this thing in my stomach, like, Hoo! like, like, yes, but it felt intimidating because, like, every night before my band played, there were three of us, and we'd kind of stand in a circle, and we would go around, and we'd each pray something, and it was usually kind of somber, and, like, if we'd been miffed at each other in the van that day, that was the time. It was like, okay, let's remember what we're here for. So, like, I, I walk over to Switchfoot and I, I'm standing next to the singer and I'm like, these guys have the golden phone to God. Like, what, whatever they're praying, I need to get some of that because they have figured out the code. And so I'm standing next to the singer and the whole band's here and then I'm here and I'm thinking, okay, they're probably gonna do it like we do. They're gonna go around in a circle, which means I'm praying last. I have to come up with the best, most holy, but also most humble prayer that I can come up with to just really blow Switchfoot out of the water. And then uh, the singer, he was like, dear God, thank you so much for this awesome night, this awesome venue. Let us go out there and just rock for you. Amen, amen. And then they run off and I was like, is that it? And, like, you know, part of me was wanting to hear what are the magic words that he's saying, and part of me was thinking, what am I going to say to impress them? And if I'm really honest, 
at the time, I was kind of bummed out. I was like, oh, that's it? Like, this, this is the, literally the biggest Christian band on the planet, and that's the prayer. But as, as time has gone on, I've realized that their prayer was far closer to how Jesus taught us to pray than whatever flowery thing it was that I would have come up with. So I hope we'll uh, get a glimpse of the kind of prayer that God wants us to have today and in the coming weeks. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount since last fall, but today we're starting a new series called Kingdom Come. And we're going to be taking a close look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, which most people know is the Lord's Prayer. And while we go through the Kingdom Come series, we've got some resources that we really hope are going to be helpful for you. You can find those on your Church Center app. If you look, you can click on it right there. Or you can visit orangewood.org slash kingdom come. You'll find a video from Pastor Tyler. You'll find... um, some books that we recommend. There's lock screen art that you can use. But one resource that I especially want to make you aware of are the spiritual practices. For each week, we have seven different spiritual practices. So, um, you know, in theory, you could do a different one every day. But I want you to experiment with them. The point isn't um, that you have to do all of them or we want you to feel guilty if you don't do every one. But I hope that you'll try um, some of these spiritual practices. And we have an abbreviated copy um, printed that you can pick up in the lobby. Um, And this is just for this week. But pick this up on your way out. And again, um, all of that can be found on your church center app or at orangewood.org slash kingdom come. So as we read, um, today we're starting chapter 6 in Matthew, but we have to remember that Jesus wasn't writing chapters, he was preaching a sermon. So what he says in chapter six is very connected to what came before it. And you may remember from weeks ago, in chapter five, verse 20, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the super religious Jews of Jesus' day. So he's saying somehow we've got to be more righteous than them. And then the bad religion series that we just finished walked us through the rest of chapter 5 where Jesus highlights the fact that simply keeping the letter of the law doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the condition of your heart. So for example, you can refrain from murdering someone but that doesn't necessarily mean you don't have hate in your heart. Or you can refrain from committing adultery, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not burning with lust in your heart. So here in chapter 6, Jesus continues to show us the sort of righteousness that has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, but now he pivots from a focus on external law-keeping to external acts of righteousness. Now, in the first century, there were three religious requirements for personal piety in mainstream Judaism. It was almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And uh, I'll say that again, almsgiving, which is giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. These were the very outward, if you were a religious Jew, that's what you did. And Jesus discusses almsgiving and prayer in today's passage, but... 
it's, it's going to drag out for a bit because he actually pauses when he's talking about prayer to teach his disciples, which is us, how to pray. But then he'll come back and address fasting in verse 16. I don't want you to worry if you are thinking you are going to have to feel guilty about eating today, about eating those like Super Bowl wings and the, and the buffalo dip and all that. You still got a few more weeks before the sermon on fasting comes. Um, But with that said, let's just jump in. Verse one of Matthew six, Jesus sums up the point of this whole first section by saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your father who sees, who is in heaven. And you'll see there's an emphasis on reward throughout this passage. And we may feel like we aren't supposed to be righteous for a reward, but Jesus is actually kind of saying rewards are good. There's nothing wrong with seeking rewards. The question is, what reward are you trying to get? You may remember that Jesus said something earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that almost seems to contradict what he's saying here. In chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So it seems like Jesus is saying in one place to do works in front of others, and then in another place, he's saying not to. But Jesus is really addressing two different issues. In Matthew 5, Jesus encourages us to let our light shine before unbelievers so that it might draw them to God. And the implication is that we may shy away from uh, acts of righteousness before unbelievers to avoid persecution, which was more common in their day. But if we're honest, in our day, uh, it's more likely that we're just avoiding looking unintelligent or backwards or just not cool to unbelievers. But the emphasis is on God's glory. Are you avoiding doing these things to be liked? Or are you seeking God's glory? But here in chapter six, when Jesus warns us not to practice our righteousness before other people, he has in mind doing things in front of other believers so that we make ourselves look good. The emphasis here is seeking our own glory rather than God's. And Jesus emphasizes several times, if your goal is to get the glory of man, then you will have no reward from God. In verses two through four, Jesus applies this principle to almsgiving. It's the first of those three religious practices of the Jews. And almsgiving is a word that we don't use much anymore. So if you don't even know what that means, it's okay. It refers to contributions to help those in need. Um, And frankly, modern churches don't so much do almsgiving. It's just kind of folded into like the collection or the contribution to the church. But in Jesus' day, there would have been special places designated in the synagogue to give alms to the poor. And the synagogue was just like kind of like a local church for the Jews. So with that in mind, listen to what Jesus says about almsgiving or giving to the needy in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
So I've <clears throat> researched this, and as far as historians know, there wasn't actually a practice of people sounding a trumpet before them, before they gave to the needy. I actually think Jesus was just kind of being funny here. Because can you imagine how goofy it would be if someone on their way out was like, oh, here's the offering box. <laughs> like, it's just, it's a silly image. And I think Jesus is kind of just pointing out, like, that's dumb. Why, why are you trying to get everybody's attention that, oh, you're, you're giving to the needy, which is what you're supposed to do anyway? He says that hypocrites do this. And most of us know what a religious hypocrite is, but early on in Greek, hypocrite referred to someone in a play who wore a mask and played a part. Jesus calls them hypocrites because they're acting righteous, but their goal is to be praised by others for their generosity. And if that's what you're after, Jesus says, well, go ahead. You got it. And that's all that you get. But if you want to be rewarded by your father in heaven, there's a different way to go about giving to the needy. And in verses three and four, this is what Jesus says. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Have you ever uh, checked out at the grocery store or drugstore or something and the cashier asked you if you wanted to add an extra dollar to your bill to donate to the Red Cross or... Um, Breast Cancer Foundation or St. Jude's or something like that. And when you do, about half the time, they slide this little paper plaque over with a Sharpie and they try to get you to write your name on it and you look and they're plastered all over the place. And the reality is like, no one's reading those things, right? No one's like, oh my gosh, Jenny H. gave $1 to the American Red Cross. I've got to find her. Um, <laughs> No one cares, but there's something about um, there's something about us that we want people to see our generosity, and we want people to know when we're blessing them. But Jesus says not to even let your left hand know that your right hand is giving to the needy. The best way is to give in secret, and the person you're giving to doesn't even need to know. When Brandy and I were in seminary, uh, we were both doing programs. So both of us were in school full-time. Both of us were working jobs that frankly didn't pay enough and we were scraping to get by. And I remember one day I went to the break room at the seminary and I checked my little mail slot with my name on it and there was an envelope and it just had my name written in block letters so that I couldn't recognize writing or anything. And I opened it up and there was some cash and I never found out who put that there, but I was blown away that someone would be so kind and equally blown away that they didn't say who they were. This blessed me, but it blessed that person too because their father who sees in secret saw what they did and will reward them. Their reward wasn't me thinking that they were generous. I want to point out that Jesus doesn't say to his followers, if you give to the needy, he says, when you give to the needy. 
The assumption is that followers of Jesus will give to the needy. So if you're not in the habit of giving to the needy, I want to encourage you to experiment with it. Even think about like having some fun with it. And I'd like to give you a few practical things that you can do. In the few years between the time that my dad retired and the time that he died, he used to go to the McDonald's behind my parents' house and he would buy his senior coffee and just sit there. And he didn't do this primarily because it was the greatest place to hang out, but he started doing this because he usually met homeless men who were in there early in the morning, either escaping the heat or escaping the cold. And when I would go get coffee with my dad, he knew these men's names. He knew their stories and he would bring them specific things that they needed, like blankets or um, boots or something like that. But there were two things that he always kept on him. He always kept $5 McDonald's gift cards on him, and he always kept uh, little gift cards for bus fare. And I know many people don't like giving money to strangers because you don't know how it's going to be used, but... I always try to keep a few $5 McDonald's gift cards on me, um, in my car especially, because I promise you, if you, if you go down I-4 and get off the Lee exit right now, somebody's going to be hanging aside. And it may be that they are trying to manipulate you. But when we stand before Jesus, I don't really want to say, didn't fool me, God. Didn't get me. I, I want to say, I tried. I did something. I don't know how they used it, but I know that a $5 gift card to McDonald's at least bought them a meal. I also want to point out a few opportunities here at Orangewood. We don't have something designated as almsgiving, like I was saying, but um, you can give uh, to Orangewood. You can give through Orangewood, if that's a better way for you to think about it. But here's what I want you to know. When you give anything to Orangewood, Every year, 11% of our budget goes to benevolence. And most years, because of your extra giving through things like the Deacon's Fund, through things like the Missions Festival that we had last week, other things like that, we actually give around 20%. Um, So I just want you to know, um, frankly, I couldn't be part of a church if I felt like when you gave, we're just trying to build our empire. Benevolence is an important part of the money that comes in. I also want you to know that if you give to our deacons funds, those funds are used solely to meet the needs of people here in our Orangewood community. I've heard two stories just this past week about big financial needs with people in crisis who have been helped through the deacons here. Um, I don't want this to sound like it's a sermon about giving. And I don't want you to think we're going to bust the collection plate out. But there is one more thing that I want to say. Because Jesus Jesus does say, when you give, not for my sake, but for yours. If you are a follower of Jesus and he assumes you give, I want you to give. And I want you to know that when you give through Orangewood, the pastors, the elders, the staff, we don't know who gives. We don't know how much you give. It's actually an intentional policy that this information is kept confidential. The passage that we're looking at is exactly the reason why. We want you to give in secret so that your father who sees in secret will reward you. So if you feel like you don't have much to give 
try getting a $5 McDonald's gift card and just see what happens with it. Or put $2 in your pocket and just say, God, show me where this should go this week. I just want you to experiment with it. In verse five, Jesus transitions from that first act of righteousness to the second, which is prayer. And this is what he says. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So in Jesus' time, which was the first century, Jews had scheduled prayers, and one of them was in the afternoon. So some people would intentionally time their day out where they'd be in a very public place when it was time for the afternoon prayer so that they'd be in the marketplace or on the street and they would just start praying in front of everyone else. They did this to show how righteous and pious they were. And if that's what people thought, they got their reward. They got what they wanted. But Jesus tells his disciples not to pray to be seen by others. He says to go into your room and shut the door. And most historians think what he's referring to is the storeroom in the house because in those days, the storeroom uh, was windowless and it was the only room in the house that actually would lock. So he's probably encouraging you go somewhere private where no one can see you. And I wanna point out there's a place for corporate prayer. I've already prayed in front of all of you Um, we're called to pray with others and pray as family. And that's mentioned throughout scripture. But when it comes to our devotion to God and our personal intimacy with him, it's something to be sought in private. And I want you to think it's like going on a date. If you really love the person that you're with, you don't go on a date to be seen by lots of people. You go on a date because you want to spend time with the person that you love. And I think that's a good way to think about prayer. In verses seven and eight, Jesus goes on to say, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. When I was a kid, every night I would pray before bed. Um, I am, I will say, If you feel like you don't have a good testimony because you don't have some radical conversion story, um, radical conversion stories are good and God uses them, but it's also good to be born and raised into a Christian home. I am so thankful. I don't remember a time that I didn't know Jesus and that I didn't talk to him. And I would talk to him every night before I went to sleep. I would pray for the members of my family. I would pray for my dog. For some reason, I always prayed for squirrels. I don't know why. I like squirrels. I just want to point out, for those of you who think I'm just like a stupid cat person, I just like animals, okay? All animals. It's all good. But I also would pray for every one of my stuffed animals because I thought they were real. And I thought they had feelings and that it would really make them feel rejected if they fell off my bed in the middle of the night. So, uh... But I would pray for them by name. God, thank you for Mama Bear and Papa Bear and Baby Bear and Mark J and Spike and Peter. 
and these are all real names, but it would go on and on and on. But, but night after night, I would do this. And then I started to say, and God bless, you know, because he knew. In fact, I started to call my stuffed animals my you knows, because instead of naming them all, I would just, God, you know, because God does know. I didn't need to name every stuffed animal every night. And though it may seem silly that I prayed for them, I look back and I see that there was something beautiful about my relationship with God that I knew he heard me and that he cared. And sometimes I wonder why so much changed. Pastor Mark, I'm still trying to learn things that I inherently knew as like a three or four year old. But I don't think there's any follower of Christ who doesn't struggle with prayer to some degree. It doesn't come naturally to anyone. The people that I know who have the richest prayer lives, it's because they have spent hours and years and probably decades cultivating it. But I sometimes wonder if we struggle with prayer so much because of the way it's been modeled to us. I grew up in a church. I said that I was thankful I grew up in a Christian home, but I'm also gonna make fun of the church that I grew up in. I I grew up in a church where when you prayed in church, something happened and you were transported back to the 1700s and this like plumber would get up and pray and be like, we thank thee for the bounty which thou hast bestoweth upon us. And I'm like, I know you, you don't talk like that. Why are you talking like that? Corporate prayer is tricky, right? Because we're called to do it. Um, When we look at the very beginnings of the church in Acts 2.42, and we think, what is church supposed to be like? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So it's been part of church corporately from the beginning. And then, of course, we're supposed to pray where two or more are gathered. So we're called to do it, but yet when we pray in front of others, we're usually concerned about how we sound, right? And the people who usually feel the most comfortable speaking up and praying are the people who are more comfortable heaping up empty phrases like the Gentiles. So if those are the kinds of people that you hear praying, you start to think, well, if I don't pray like that, I must be doing it wrong. I must be praying wrong. And you know who's the worst at this? Pastors. Don't get me started. Pastors are the worst at big flowery prayers. But I don't want my kids to learn to pray like a pastor. I want my kids to learn to pray like Jesus. That's why we're going to be spending so much time in the Lord's Prayer over the next few weeks. I timed it this week. You know how long it takes for me to pray the Lord's Prayer, even if I'm doing it slow? It takes about 20 seconds. It's not a long, flowery prayer. If I find myself heaping up empty phrases, it's probably because I'm thinking more about impressing you than actually engaging with God. And chances are, if you're impressed with my prayer, I've already received my reward. See, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is most often hidden righteousness. It's a righteousness that no one gets to see I want you to think of the root system of a tree. And we have an image of one, a beautiful image. We don't normally get to see trees looking like this. 
when you look at a tree, you know you never see the whole tree. Only our Father in heaven sees the whole tree. But the part that we don't see is the most important part. The roots are what gives a tree its nourishment. It's how it gets its water. It's how it gets minerals. No matter how big and beautiful that tree is, if you cut it off from the roots, it's going to die. If the roots are too shallow, that tree won't bear fruit. The parts of the trees that are visible, the part that bears fruit, this is your love and your kindness to others. You can almost think of Jesus' two greatest commands, love God and love others. The fruit, the part that people see is when you love others. Or to put it the way Jesus did, it's your light shining before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But the root, the hidden part, that's your intimacy with God. It's your relationship with Jesus. It's the time and the quality of time that you spend in the presence of God, loving him and being loved by him. No one can actually see your intimacy with God, but your Father in heaven sees and he rewards. And of course, of course, there's an eternal reward that comes from being rooted in Christ and being intimate with God. But I really think the reward starts now. When we seek the glory of other people, we can sometimes get it, but it's never enough. It never really satisfies. But when we seek God, we get God himself. And what greater reward can we have? My question to you, my challenge to you, what is one simple, practical thing you can do this week to deepen your roots? What is one simple practical thing you can do to deepen your roots. And I really mean simple. Make it something manageable and attainable that won't set you up to fail and just make you feel more shame that you couldn't do it or you couldn't sustain it. And make it practical. If you just think, I need to spend more time with God this week, it's probably not going to happen because that's very vague. But I want you to try something. And I don't want you to think about it as this is your duty, but think about it as This is how I'm going to spend time with God. Whether I get anything out of it or not, I just want to be with God. Think, what's the next step you can take in moving further in intimacy with God? And if you want some help with making a small practical step, that's what we have the resources for. You can go to orangewood.org slash kingdom come and look at the spiritual practices. But I I want you to think about this. The glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that because of what he has done on our behalf, God not only may be known, but he's always with us. And he doesn't just tolerate us, he loves us. Jesus is the only one who's ever actually capable of practicing righteousness. And ironically, he did it before others. He practiced his righteousness when he died on a cross in front of both friends and enemies. And he did it when he rose from the grave. And over 500 people witnessed the risen Christ. And he did it when he ascended to the right hand of God in full view of his disciples. 
if you follow Jesus, his righteousness is yours. So you don't need to impress anyone else with your righteousness. In the Presbyterian church, we talk about justification. We talk about being justified before God. I want you to be hit anew with this reality. If I am justified before God, I don't have to be justified before anyone else. Let's pray. Our Father, I come before you humbly, not wanting to heap up empty phrases. You know the needs of our heart. You know there are people hurting. You know there are people wondering if you're even there. There are people who desperately need you. Some know that they do and some do not realize it. May your kingdom come. May you meet our deepest needs and may you be glorified in us. May we accept your righteousness as our own and seek you this week in the secret places. May you deepen our roots and nourish us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.